Welcome back to the show, everyone. I'm your host, Aaron Lowe. And if this is your first episode and you're wondering what this whole thing is all about, well, I'll tell you. Every week, I find my head surgically attached to the body of a different friend and cinephile. Together, we are given a note containing a theme, sometimes specific and sometimes vague. Our job is then to pick a pair of movies that fit that theme and then watch and discuss. This is The Incredible Two-Headed Podcast. with rick or no no i have not oh okay never mind then i won't mention it um why, but why, I, wait, I, wait. I did what? see it last weekend at the oh, new okay. Beverly. yeah yeah um, that's it i i really I, I just want to say that i really liked it and i watched it i went to it because i i heard it on your show oh, okay yeah. we went to we i was working all week for the last couple of weeks i've been working a few days a week down in norco which is it's only 15 minutes away from where he lives so uh, last week, he and his wife ordered pizza, and I got up work and went over there, and we watched uh, Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, and the other movie we think we're going to pair with it, which is not quite noir, but it has elements at the end, is uh, Pennies from Heaven, which was oh, quite the double bill to yeah. have in the middle of the afternoon. Wow, have you seen cool. Pennies from Heaven? Uh, no, I haven't. Um, well, I'm not going to okay. spoil anything, but that's like a weird movie. Um, it was not what I expected, and I'm not sure at all. I've got to watch it again because I'm not really sure how <laughs> yeah. I feel about it. Wow. Like it, yeah, that's interesting. It it has so much amazing stuff, and then other some other stuff I was just like, oh, I don't like this. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I realized when I was watching Dead Dead Man Don't Wear Plaid that I haven't seen very many um, Steve Martin movies, and I don't know why. I don't dislike uh, his movies, but he's really funny. <laughs> he's really funny, and he's not very funny in pennies from heaven there are like funny moments but he's it's not a comedy yeah um isn't that like a depression era yeah yeah, yeah. it's like a depression era musical where they lip sync all of the music like it, it plays oh, the actual yes. song from the yeah. era i yeah i didn't know about that I, yeah pennies uh, from heaven. I'm gonna look and christopher walken has like a, an amazing one scene appearance and his dancing is so good. <laughs> like he's a dancer right so of course yeah. it's good but I'm going to stop talking about it because I like this is all <laughs> stuff that I'm probably going to say in yet, but yeah, um, yeah, for yeah, sure. Yeah, Dead Man Plaid, great. Yeah, yeah, very great, very funny. I enjoyed that a lot. And uh, speaking of noir, we have Aaron uh, Lowe on the show today from uh, the Incredible Two Headed Podcast. This is uh, once again a mashup of our two shows, and they are they kind of aligned in a way. You're doing uh, Summer in the Shadows. Uh, I'm wrapping up on my show uh, on my show uh, Summer of Kubrick, and we've done uh, all the movies that are in the 1001 Movies You Must See Before You Die, uh, as far as Kubrick goes. Now. Uh, just to complete Summer of Kubrick and, and kind of have fun with the rest of uh, his films. Uh, I'm going to do episodes for the remaining uh, Kubrick films that are not on, on the one th uh, 1001 movies. Uh, and that's why we're here. 
uh, we were trying to figure out a way to do another crossover episode and Killer's Kiss uh, checks that box as a noir-ish. Uh, and uh, we ha- we wanted to, pa- we didn't know what to pair it with, uh, but then uh, we came up with Lady from Shanghai uh, and I think uh, pairing a Wells, Orson Welles movie with a Stanley Kubrick movie uh, is a great idea. And I'm excited to talk about those uh, two movies. Also, Lady from Shanghai (laughs) is on the 1001 movie. So it is, uh, uh, there's so many layers to this episode. It's like (laughs) 1001 movies, part of the Summer of Kubrick series, part of Summer in the Shadows. Uh, And yeah, this is going on both our feeds. And yeah, let's let's get into it. Uh, We're going to do this in chronological order. Uh, First stop is the Lady from Shanghai from 1947 or 1948, depending on where you look. Uh, and this one is directed by Orson Welles. Uh, go ahead, Aaron. What is this one about? Orson Welles plays Michael O'Hara, an Irish sailor who finds himself embroiled in the increasingly complicated personal lives of big-time lawyer Arthur Bannister and Arthur's wife, Elsa, the titular lady from Shanghai, played by Welles' then-wife, Rita Hayworth. O'Hara, somewhat against his better judgment, joins the couple on a yacht voyage from the East Coast to the West, Along the way, they are joined by Arthur's possibly suicidal partner, George Grisby, and the ridiculous complications begin piling up. Now, that, that, that's kind of the, that's why <laughs> this movie has so many, like, layers to what is going on and what the characters' motivations are. Um, and it, it, it's not really helped by the fact that, like most of Wells's stuff post-Kane, it was really butchered by the studio. Like, this is not... Yeah quite what he wanted to make and i reports are it was kind of a confusing plot to begin with and i i don't think studio meddling helped that at all uh, which we can discuss as we go on but um yeah. I'd, I'd seen this movie a, a couple of times before and it's one that grows on me every time i see it the first time i saw it i didn't quite know what was going on and after that i i, I really enjoy all of the strange flourishes wells puts into this and just like all the weird techniques he's doing and the mix of comedy, like really broad cartoonish comedy yeah. and, and like dark irony. I, yeah. This one like gets better every time I see it, but what, what's your history with it? Yeah, definitely. I agree. This is only my second time watching it. I, re- I remember the first time I saw this, I really liked it, but I think I was really uh, impressed by the ending of the movie. And that's really what I remembered about it. I didn't remember any of the, of, of the plot at all, just that the ending was super cool. And then on this watch, I realized, wow, like the whole movie is actually really great. It's such a strange mishmash of different things and different people interfering with the project itself. And just, it is such a strange noir and it adds to that kind of, I mean, the, 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 the ending of the movie kind of sums up what, you know, the style of the whole movie. It's crazy. It's unreal. It's, it's weird. It's one of those noirs that I really enjoy. Um, and the second watch was uh, really great. And I look forward to watching this movie again. And it's really a very unique film uh, from uh, a director who has been, uh, who had been, a, you know, a groundbreaking director and who wasn't popular at the time as far as money goes uh, for the studios, problematic, but attempted to do his works and his projects. Uh, with his intentions, uh, or uh, I'm sorry, with his vision, 
uh, at least in some capacity, even if it was skewed by the studios. There's still something that surfaces to the top that is very Orson Welles. And I think, uh, yeah, there, this is no exception. Yeah, uh, Welles kind of goes through like phases of popularity mm-hmm. where, you know, you, you can see it at like the placement of Citizen Kane on like things like the Sight and Sound top 10 list and kind of critically and po- in, in popular culture, his reputation goes up and down. There's a lot of times people think he's overrated. I think right now we're in a period where, where um, people just aren't really that keen on Orson Welles. And um, I, I mean, I remember a couple of years ago when they, they couldn't even get uh, the other side of the wind kickstarted. Like they were trying to kickstart that for finishing just to be able to edit the movie together and yeah. they couldn't get interest in it until Netflix stepped in and was like, well, we'll do it. We'll do it. Yeah. And, and that, amazed me that like Orson Welles his final unfinished film we have a chance to finish it and nobody cared but um yeah so at the time like he was kind of like he came out of the gate strong and then after that he just never had that same control again and I like we we got to kind of stop thinking about Orson Welles as kind of a failure in a way because he never had that control and every single one of his projects was kind of bungled by the studio from Magnificent Ambersons on. Um, like there's so much footage from his movies that is just lost forever. Uh, and we got to kind of start looking at what he was still able to do. And I do get a sense in Lady from Shanghai of a like a playfulness that even if like this movie isn't exactly what he wanted to do and he was reportedly pretty upset about what they changed in it without his uh, his approval, yeah, there is there is a sense that he's kind of just having fun, like he's he's playing around with uh, with technique and um, and style and tone in a way not maybe not quite as like ambitious as Citizen Kane, but it's still like along that same level. Right. Because this is yeah. one of the first studio films to be shot primarily on location. Mm-hmm. And yeah. he's he's filming it kind of in a documentary style. Uh he, he had tried to avoid close-ups, but the studio kind of insisted on reshoots with close-ups. So that's the way they all look so weird because like the wide shots are clearly on location and all the close-ups are clearly on a set. Um, yeah, those, but those I shots think that are adds to it. Yeah, yeah go I, I think yeah. that kind of adds to how fun this movie is and how really strange it is. Like it, this is a weird movie. Uh, it, it's bizarre, but I, I, yeah. I, know, I, I do love it. Yeah, the the production the production of the movie is, itself was uh, not not too laborious, but there were issues uh, uh, throughout. And I mean, one of the big ones was uh, Wells's uh, choice to have Rita Hayworth's hair cut short and uh, dyed blonde. Um, and you know, she was known for her curly long hair, and 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 now it was gone, and she had this complete look. It's almost like Wells wanted the audience to 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 kind of despise this character or have a negative effect towards this character. And I think that was a great, uh, a great choice. There's touches like that. And, and you mentioned the, the, the close-ups. Uh, it's weird because in some scenes, it's a very black, uh, black and white in the shadows uh, uh, cinematography. And then you 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 cut to the necessary, or at least what the studio deems necessary, glamour shots of Rita Hayworth. I think she was the one that was outraged when there were no close-ups of her, and those had to be uh, inserted 
uh, later. And those are much clearer than like, like the shots, the, like there's a scene where, where Rita Hayworth is, is talking with Orson Welles and both their faces are, sh- uh, are, are shot with light coming from the side. So it, it casts a shot on the other side, but when they close up, it's like, you can see Rita's like full face, like fully lit. Uh, yeah. and it's just so like, it doesn't match. And there's a lot of things in this movie that don't match. Like either the, the editing is really weird, especially in the first half of the movie It's very erratic and abrupt. And it almost seems like, I don't know, like it was just kind of put together. I know the, the I think the original cut of this film was like a 155 minutes and the final uh, product is 87 minutes. <laughs> so a lot, a lot was cut down uh, from this movie as it shows, um, but I, I mean, we can start. To, we can start talking about the movie itself. Like the the the. Well, uh, do you have a grasp on the on on uh, Grisby's plot? <laughs> yeah, it, everybody seems to have their own plot that somehow, like, works into like they, they're taking advantage of the other person's plot. And I, I mean, I, this is like my fourth time watching it, and I'm not quite sure. I I know who killed who. Um, not entirely sure why, and uh, like it, it. Other than the fact that everybody is unhappy, and he he has that uh, Wells uh, O'Hara with an Irish brogue that grows on me as well. Like I didn't like it the first time I watched it. I was like, what's this voice he's doing? But yeah, I don't. I don't. I, it's only my second time. I didn't like it. <laughs> I, I I think he's doing an okay yeah. job. I I I think it it works. Um, he has that. He he's there at like some poolside or beachside. Uh, like everybody's getting drunk. Uh, Grisby, Bannister, and um, uh, Elsa. And he he's like, "Why don't you want to live? Or why don't you want to keep working with us? Why are you not happy?" And Wells tells that story about like the uh, shark feeding frenzy that he <laughs> the shark. Yeah, and he like he the shark got off the hook, but it started bleeding and it drew all these other sharks and just like all the sharks killed each other. He's like, not one shark got out of their alive. And he says something about like, that's the the most vicious thing he's ever seen until he got around these people. And yeah. it really just seemed like <laughs> people, these people all hate each other so much. Yeah. <laughs> and like you talk about in the beginning, how kind of erratic it is. There, there's so many kind of things in the, in the opening scenes that look like clues for what's going to happen later. But unless I missed something huge, don't actually pay off because he takes Elsa home in that scene where they, they steal, a, they steal a, um, a horse and carriage yeah. <laughs> uh, from Central Park. And he's like, he's like, we borrowed it. And but they're avoiding the police and they're just taking it down streets. And it's clear they're not they're going where they're not supposed to. And but he takes her home. And suddenly, while he's not looking, a bunch of people like, well, two people, I guess, come out of the shadows and act like they've been there for a while. And they're characters we will see later. They're, they're characters that are going to be on the yacht. And mm-hmm. one of them doesn't show up until, again, for like another 20 minutes or so. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it looks like like he's being set up. Like they went out and staged this whole, like Elsa is being mugged scene to get him involved somehow. Yeah, because Grisby is there. Grisby is there, like, like just kind of like standing very conspicuously, right? Like he's he's like standing, like like he's not wanting to be noticed, but he's being very still and kind of statue-like. And and somebody comes out and says, "Evening, Mister Grisby." 
and he gets like really angry and storms off crossing the frame. And so there's this weird like kind of tableau where there's four different people going in four different directions, looking in four different places for just a moment. And it, it seems like that's supposed to be important. Like there's, cause he sees those people later when he sees Grisby, he's like, didn't I see you at the parking garage? And, and he's like, Oh no, I was in Haiti. And the other guy that was there is somebody else on the yacht. And he's like, Hey, I think I saw you last night. And he's like, couldn't have been me. must've been somebody else. Like, why are they doing that? Like, it, yeah, I don't understand what all that's supposed to mean. <laughs> Everyone's hiding their 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 true in, intentions uh, throughout the whole movie because the, the relationship between Michael and Elsa is not like fully clear. Um, it seems that Michael wants Elsa, but he doesn't. Um, and it seems the same with Arthur. Like it seems like he prizes her, but then like kind of doesn't treat her the best or you know talk to her in the best way. It's so. It's like these people need each other so they're not so lonely, but like you said, they can't stand each other. And it, it kind of, in a sense, feels uh, like a, well, I don't know when that book was written, but like the the Jean, Jean-Paul Sartre play No Exit, where like no one likes each other and they're just kind of stuck in this place uh, and they have to deal with it. And they're all scheming against each other or at least trying to, to one-up everyone, except maybe Michael, because he does seem like he is the fool in all of this. The way that he's convinced by Grisby, uh, this plan doesn't sound solid or grounded in any real law as Grisby claims. I think he, like, there's a lot of logical things that make sense in his argument of, if you know you're gonna kill me and it's gonna look like you killed me, but I'm not actually gonna be dead. I just need to be gone and disappear. Um, but they're not gonna find a body. So even if you admit to murder, you're not gonna go to jail. It just seems so flimsy, and like something that's not gonna work. But I don't know if Orson, like Michael, ever really says yes. He kind of just gets pulled towards it and ends up in these situations that it seems like he can't escape. And he does, yeah, and it's not, only, not by his own hand either. Yeah, not only does he not, like, the plot not make sense that he's, like, he, I would think, like, no, I'd probably go to jail, even if they don't find your body. If there's witnesses to me murdering you and I have a signed confession, I think they could put me in jail. Like, yeah. <laughs> but the plan, as, as Bannister points out later, is that Grisby wants to fake his own death to claim the insurance money. But how is he going to do that? If he's dead, yeah. he we're supposed to be dead. Like, it, like to his credit, M- Michael's credit, he he definitely immediately wants Rita Hayworth, and then when he finds out that she's married, he kind of backs off, and they That's have true. to pursue yes. him to get them on the boat. Like he definitely like wants Rita Hayworth, but has enough sense to fight against that for almost the entire movie. Um, to kind of like, re, like there's one scene where they kiss, but he kind of rebuffs her or tries to stay away from her for most of the movie. I, I had somewhere else I was going to go with that, but it, it I lost it. <laughs> <laughs> the the character of of, of Rita Hayworth, because everyone, all the male character male characters in this movie seem kind of sleazy and grimy and not really well put together. Uh, but here comes Elsa Bannister, who is almost almost like the perfect like emblem that takes everyone down in this movie. Like she is kind of like on that pedestal. She's prim. Uh, she just, you know, she has that glamorous 
Hollywood look. And everyone else is just like working the docks or like just, you know, the, the, it's the, their look, it's so grimy. It's like, how, how is how, like, I understand like all these men being attracted to her, but how does, how do all these men sort of gravitate towards her and how is she involved in all of this? Like Bannister is uh, almost immobile. He walks around with uh, 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 two crutches, uh, Michael is an alcoholic. <laughs> it, it, I don't know what's wrong with Grisby. There's something off about Grisby. Grisby is the weirdest <laughs> character. He's he 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 always talks like there's like little some little joke that's really amusing him. Yeah. Like there's that yeah. scene where he reveals to Michael that he wants to commit suicide, and like before he says it, he lets him know it's like fake suicide. Yeah. He's like, the world's gonna end. I don't want to be here. I want to like I want to kill myself. Bye bye. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like, and he yeah. like, like looks up and he flips his head back as he says this really high pitched and walks away like all jauntily. And there, there's something about him like he's he's so amused by everything. He's such a weird character. Like, I get Elsa falling in with Bannister because Bannister is wealthy. He's well, he, not really, but he's got the illusion of class. Yeah. Um, she comes from kind of more desperate background and wanted stability. I can see her getting into that relationship. Yeah. I can see her being attracted to Michael because it, I mean, Orson Welles is kind of a roguish figure and yeah, yeah, he's a yeah. good storyteller. He's a, he's a charismatic character. I do not get it. The revelation later on that there was something going on between her and Grisby. <laughs> like, oh, Grisby, yeah. I understand Grisby <laughs> being attracted to her, but he's such a weirdo. Yeah. He's such an, he's such an off-putting person that I, I'm like, wait, she was involved with him. Like she was trying to like run off with him. And I think it's just desperation. Like she just wants to get out of the relationship with Arthur, but it's still, it's so strange. Um, What I was going to say about, uh about Wells kind of being dragged along on these plots that, that, that seem like he should know better. Like they're not like he's, he's an idiot or very naive is that he's narrating the movie and i don't i don't think there is a single noir movie where we can trust the narrator i I think they're always kind of leaving stuff out or trying to make themselves look like a victim in areas where they're not necessarily the victim so i think maybe there's more to it and maybe in the longer cut of this movie there'd also be more but um as it is i don't quite trust things happened as as he says yeah, I, I I think that Michael's life is a, a bigger mess than either he realizes or is maybe like you're saying, trying to cover it up. But Wells does a, such a great job in his direction that we get that sense throughout the movie, especially at the end. Um, everything's like he's uh, like this. The scenes I really like the scenes uh, in the aquarium, um, the way that the the sea creatures are. Uh, made to look really big um, behind them. They're kind of monstrous and overbearing. Um, and they're sort of trapped. Like it seems like they're trapped in this fishbowl and they're just kind of swimming around when they're walking around talking. And that's like sort of the backdrop. There's, they're trapped in this sort of, you know, this, this, this vicious world that they've willingly put themselves in. And, you know, this is the life 
that they have chosen. And, 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 and this sort of life has consequences as we start to see when the body count starts to pile up. It, it, the, the plan originally was for one fake death, which leads to several real deaths in, in, the, in the story. It's so, nothing goes as planned. We may have these plans and things may go a certain way, uh, but we are making these choices and then the universe comes in and you know, for whatever reason, something happens. Actually not even the universe, because I think it's the decisions of the characters, like uh, their actions are sort of, I, I, they're, they're very impulsive. Um, and it's just, it, 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 you can't escape it. You can't escape, you know, a life of violence by shooting your way out of it. And it seems like that's sort of like the idea that a lot of these noirs have. It's like you either recede from that or, you know, from that life and you you escape from it. Um, but it doesn't, it, it seems like this is a story with no escape, just especially for Wells, because it seems like it gets in, he gets in deeper and deeper as we start to find out, especially through the trial. Which, by the way, that trial was the craziest trial I've ever seen. Like, there was no, it, it almost felt like Wells was making a mockery of uh, then modern day uh, courtroom. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I remember seeing a documentary or reading an interview with Wells where he was talking about his original intent is that the movie gets more ridiculous as it goes along. It gets more and more heightened and the comedy is, is a little bit stranger um because there's always kind of a little in the beginning like a little bit of a wit like a dry humor to everything yeah, but by the time you get to the end it's just like bonkers that it, it seems like that courtroom scene in fact that the entire last act of the movie basically are a victim of this re-editing that he really like wanted to play up the like exaggerated nature of arthur banister's ha uh, handicap where he was going to be like almost almost a cartoon character right like he wanted right. this he wanted this courtroom scene to be like a live action cartoon and uh it doesn't quite reach that but it is so strange and very funny i think at times but god very funny yeah every everything i watch of wells post kane as much as i love it i i, I just want to see what ha what he was envisioning like i wish they hadn't just destroyed all of that footage Oh, um, I know that. Yeah, that's so heartbreaking to know that, that this stuff actually existed and it was just it's gone. <laughs> like, I don't know if you've seen any of the there's like produ production stills for the last act of the Magnificent Ambersons, uh, you know, because the, the movie like m moves forward in time, like generationally yeah. mm -hmm. and like the the sets that were designed for Ambersons and like the the plot where it was supposed to go and how it was supposed to resolve sound like so much better than what we got even though the movie is considered a classic it, it's just like it's amazing and that they just destroyed all that stuff and the same with this like that scene in the fun house wells originally envisioned it and directed it as a 20 minute tour de force of just like abstract editing and really odd camera angles yeah and strange slapstick action and it's three minutes long in the finished movie. Yeah, it as great as that scene is in, in, in the final film, it does feel short. This time I thought there would be more and I remember there being more, but it does feel like that could have been expanded, really could have set the mood and the tension. And, and, it, and it does that to a certain extent, but it, it focuses more on the psychological relationship between the three characters. And um, it's it, it, that, oh my God, I like the funhouse scene. It's just so crazy that that scene is in this movie. Like that that set that they build for that is, is so incredible. Like 
the, the the giant slide is so like it just feels like straight out of like like you, you're saying like a cartoon is just like it kind of slips and then whoops there he goes down this giant slide and it, it just it, it, it makes, looks comical too like it's not it, it's weird yeah it makes me think of like like something like the five thousand fingers of dr t yeah or, or, or one of these like one of these uh 50s and 60s fantasy for kids movies like a, a dr seuss is something yeah. rather it is really uh really re- like well, i keep saying ridiculous but it's really exaggerated it's very uh heightened yeah very much i the, you know we're talking about the 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 production design and all that stuff also the, i think uh I, I really like the the most of the cinematography is really great but what i like the most is a lot of the moving camera stuff um and some of it reminded me a lot of Kubrick, which we'll talk about uh, in a bit. Uh, but one of my favorite moments is when Ban- the banisters are uh, both Elsa and Arthur are sitting down on a bench and they're talking and the camera's slowly dollying in. But it's moving so slowly that it's almost imperceptible. Like you can't tell. And all of a sudden, after- and they're talking for a really long time. But you can tell like the camera is moving, but it's just so slow and it's and it's so it's done. So like, how did they even do that? Because it's done so perfectly. And it, you know, the the pacing of that of that of that movement never changes. It's the same movement and it just moves in very close from uh, from a medium two shot to uh, medium close up. And I just really like that. And there was others, other things in here, like uh, tracking shots that look great and, and, and a few overhead shots that we'll get to. Man, I just like uh, I, I don't want to keep harping on it, like what could have been, but like <laughs> yeah, this movie because Wells had a reputation after a while of like going over budget and being difficult to work with, but he delivered this movie. This movie came in on time and under budget, but Harry Cohn, president of Columbia, like really, really hated the movie. He hated the tone. He hated the comedy. He uh, uh, was upset about the lack of close-ups for the stars, the documentary style. He hated the new hairstyle he gave Wells gave to Hayward, <laughs> yeah. um, and so he he forced them to go back and reshoot, and that's what that's what like caused the budget to really balloon. I think it, uh, like a third of the budget uh, is what it added to it. Do you, do you, do you know the story about how Wells even chose this project? Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. You probably know it a little bit better than me. <laughs> I just know like a I'm few things that, that I read online. I, I don't know like in depth. He, I, all I know is that Wells was desperate uh, for money. He needed fifty five thousand dollars, and it was I think oh, it oh. had something to do with his studio, uh, his uh, theater company or something. He needed the yeah, money. Yeah, he needed to finish to yeah. finish a show he was putting on. Yeah, and then so he was looking for things to 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 shoot and he found this book and he presented it to Columbia and Harry Cohn but his stipulation was that he wanted 55,000 up front so you can you know pay off this thing and then you know he he went on to make the movie but yeah he said he would do it for without for no further fee just yeah. for the money <laughs> which is like oh man like I, I, I like Wells to me for like Orson Wells very groundbreaking filmmaker who I feel didn't have the the discipline that Kubrick had. Wells is like, um, no offense to Wells, I love Orson Wells, but he's kind of a mess, like in a lot of like different ways. Maybe it's not even his fault, but a lot of like money, and he poured a lot of his own money for his productions, uh, which just to get them made or to happen, and it's just 
he didn't have, I feel like the, the shot and the chance that, that, that Kubrick did just because his first two movies weren't the big things that they are now. And now Amberson's and, and Kane are both regarded as uh, some of the best American films of all time. So it's just, it's so weird. Like someone who we got a glimpse of it throughout his movies and at least in Citizen Kane, I think um, in, it just, comes to show like it's almost like right place at the right right time and I think a lot of things like that worked out for Kubrick and and he was more uh I feel centered and had things under control for the most part it's it's such an interesting parallel Wells came out of the gate strong with a kind of a a big budget movie Mm -hmm. a very audacious movie that was taking aim at a very, like a real life figure with a lot of power. Like it was a ballsy move for him and it flopped. Like he had complete creative control. I think that's the one movie where we get to see like what he, he wanted to do completely. Um, Maybe, maybe he had some limitations, like things he wasn't able to achieve, but that is what he was able to do without interference and it bombed. And so he was never given that, that, freedom again nobody trusted him even though you're right like generations later people are like this is great it's just at the time nobody really nobody appreciated it the way they would come to and you know he had to do start doing a lot more work for hire i i do think because yeah they're they're both kind of like iconoclastic figures who exert as much control as possible over their productions and are known for being very exacting. But I I think you're right. Kubrick had a little bit better handle on how to maneuver the studio system. Like he was able to get control early and keep it. And I think it's mainly because he started out smaller. Like Wells came from theater and he was considered, he was gonna be like the wonderkind. He was gonna be the next big thing. Kubrick, I think, built his reputation slowly and you know and was pretty low budget so he, he was able to keep control over it a lot of it like shot kind of with his own money or just like you know guerrilla style as we'll talk about like in the next mo- movie yeah. we discuss and then and building up a little bit in prestige until he's on spartacus which is completely work for hire i think he kind of went into that and really didn't rock the boat like he's just like i think i think that's the one movie that he made where he's just like or maybe not completely, but more than any other movie, he was just allowing the studio to let him know what to do. I, I think that was a big hit. Maybe it wasn't a big hit at the time, but it, I mean, like certainly it left a huge impression. Um, and then from then on, like there was no looking back. He just did whatever he wanted. And sometimes he would give, he would give a little to the studio and just enough to kind of keep going, I guess. But um, yeah, he has like a, like Kubrick has a body of work that is more complete and concrete because after Spartacus and Lolita, like from Dr. Strangelove onto to Full Metal Jacket, that's, that's what he's known for. And those movies are really high up there, like really well regarded. And, and they feel like they are com- at least close to complete Kubrick vision. Yeah. And there is that kind of, stink of compromise to wells that i'm sure he wasn't ever able to shake right because like once your first movie is taken away by the studio completely just chopped apart and um wasn't it robert wise who finished ambersons uh yes uh, I, I believe so yeah robert and wise. and uh kind of ruined their friendship 
Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Once yeah. once that happened to Ambersons, he he had that reputation in Hollywood as being like difficult. The studio is going to have to come in and fix things, and he just was never able to run away from it. Even though he would still put in solid work, you know, keep it on on budget. I I, I also just think he wasn't able to just. I think he learned it a few times, but I, I just don't think he was able to just say, I'm I'm a journeyman for the studio. This is for them. Like, I'm just going to do this for them. Uh, I think he he just wanted to be, well, he wanted to be what Kubrick had, right? He wanted to be yeah. the iconoclast that had complete control. Yeah. And it was taken away from him every time. But then, you you know, you get some, like, like to his, his later films when he was getting funding from overseas and he did have a little bit more control. Mm-hmm. And I love those movies. I love, like, F for Fake and stuff like that. But it... It is stuff that, like, yeah, maybe this doesn't have a wide audience, right? Like maybe, <laughs> yeah. Maybe, <laughs> maybe I can understand why the studio isn't willing to give him a ton of money for some of this yeah. stuff. Yeah, Effort Fake is so great. <laughs> yeah, that's that's another movie, too, very well, Zach. I don't really understand what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, okay, I think I get it. But then I was like, oh, maybe I don't. <laughs> I, but I, I've only seen that movie once, uh, and it was, like, maybe five years ago. Yeah, yeah, I, well, I, I think I've only seen it the once too. Yeah. Um, it was a maybe that wasn't the best example. To pull out, <laughs> yeah, but, but yeah, uh, did, did you want to talk about the ending of the film? Um, I know we kind of broadly covered it, but do you want to talk about just how it all plays out and what we end up discovering? At yeah, the yeah. End? <laughs> um, yeah, so you know, we, we've already mentioned how crazy the fun house scene is and the house of mirrors and the play on that, um, and, and the way it's shot with with Elsa and Michael um, surrounded by mirrors, kind of the, the eye, go, they, they, their, their reflection goes into infinity. And then here comes uh, the third wheel in this whole thing. And uh, they're both uh, pointing guns at each other. And by both, I mean, Elsa and Arthur Bannister. And they kind of, this is what I meant by he, he, he escapes, but it's not by his hand. They end up shooting each other <laughs> and, uh, in a, it is great shootout. I love the way it's all it's all shot and put together. It's so good, and I think that's what what where it becomes clear, like how cartoonish Wells wanted the movie to become. When Arthur comes in, and he's being shot like where it's just like a bunch of vertical mirrors, and so we're seeing him like eight or nine times on the screen, and he's like kind of like wobbling into frame on his crutches, and it it's such a weird like kind of wavy motion the way it's mirrored oh that, yeah that like i don't know I, I i really like it i think it's some of the best shots in the movie right there i mean yeah it's the most, that, it's the most like um dazzling shots i guess yeah he uh wells wanted to model those scenes after uh german expressionism uh specifically, oh, it's very clear yeah very clear. cabinet of uh dr caligari and you get that it, it, it i like I like the the scene, like what you're talking about. When, when he first comes up uh, from under, when after he slides, that mirror, that that wavy one, it kind of elongates his and kind of it elongates and then distorts his image. Like you can tell it's him, but then it's like, well, what is that? Um, and a lot of the movie is shot with wide angle lenses too, which distorts uh, features as well. So this whole movie is about just this odd sort of space where everything is not is not what, what it seems. And I think that it's a perfect conclusion to the film by setting it up in this place where things don't appear as they are. Yeah, there's a there's a, a 
the funhouse mirrors the hall of mirrors whole aspect to it is perfect like it, it does just like crystallize the metaphor of this movie because there's so many scenes early on where you'll have elsa arthur and george and michael is there just kind of like he's kind of just witnessing and they're talking like everybody seems to be having a different conversation <laughs> yeah everybody is making remarks that like they're all talking and it all makes sense as a conversation but you also get the impression that they're all responding to different things or there's different meanings. And we don't find out what a lot of those are. <laughs> like, yeah. we don't, like we don't know what the relationships are between a lot of these characters. Um, we get like a line or two there and it, I guess it's enough to just kind of be like, oh, go with it. But there's so much that we are not getting. Like we just don't know what, what the story is that it does feel like, you know, you're lost in a maze sometimes mm. listening to these conversations. And like I said, this is my like fourth time watching it. And I'm I'm not entirely sure what, what is being said by some of this. It's like, well, the way he said that has meaning somehow. Like, well, I'm supposed to be getting something from it, but I don't know what it is. Uh, yeah. And, and this is where it's revealed that it turns out that Elsa was behind most of uh, most of it, or at least the driving force uh, for that. And I think it. Uh, yeah, because we 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 are led to believe that Arthur has killed Grisby because it yeah. the, the, like we're told then that the plan is Grisby is not going to fake his own death. He is going he is framing Michael for the murder of Arthur and he gets there and he's like, oh, it's to stop it. And he's like, oh, it's too late. Arthur's dead. But no, Arthur's alive. And you, you like <laughs> yeah. Arthur's like, you're going to need a good lawyer. And he's like, he takes the case because he wants to be sure that. Michael yeah. goes to prison, but um, he we're we're led to believe up till the very end, basically, that Arthur killed Grisby and is framing Michael because he, he because of jealousy, like he mm -hmm. he knows that they both loved his wife. Not only is it bold for Wells to change Rita's look, but it's also bold to have her go the way that she does. She's been shot. She's crawling on the floor, begging not to die. She's like, I don't want to die. See, that's the star of like your movie in a different era where, you know, stars are held to a certain regard. Certain stars didn't do certain things. And here's Rita uh, just begging for life. <laughs> She's dying. Yeah, I, I don't know a lot about it, but I remember reading a book years ago that talked about Rita Hayworth and Orson Welles. And I really remember getting the impression like, like poor Rita Hayworth. Like that, that she had just been kind of mistreated by the studio. Like, you know, actresses were not and still right. aren't to a great extent, but like actresses in the fifties, it's like forties and fifties. It's just like, damn, the shit that they would have to put up with. And Orson Welles kind of came in and I think he thought like saw himself as her, as a little bit of a savior. Like mm -hmm. he's going to kind of like make these projects for her. He's going to protect her. And then Orson Welles being Orson Welles and like, kind of the lack of attention that Orson Welles has just mm -hmm. did kind of like ignore her start like kind of like uh you know like leaving her alone or kind of like stepping out it yeah sounded like as much as I respect the guy as an artist and like he was clearly kind of like just a man of appetites and I just felt really bad for Rita Hayworth in this period all right do you have any other thoughts on Lady from Shanghai before well we I just want to like yeah say again about how edit, how like edited down this movie is like how ridiculous it is sometimes that 
we will jump forward in time weeks. We will be in brand new parts of the world. Huge developments will happen in the plot and it'll just be kind of like a fade out, some establishing shots and we get to hear Orson Welles describe what happened that we didn't see. <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> I know that there was more to it. I yeah. know that we would have seen a lot of these scenes. And it's, um, I mean, it doesn't help with being able to understand it when you just got to listen to somebody talk about what happened. Yeah, that's the, that's all the, that's the one, the 155 minute version of the movie. That's all that stuff that, that we probably missed out on. I mean, who knows? We found, the, <laughs> they found the other side of the wind. Maybe, yeah. Oh Maybe goodness. they will find, I, like you hear that where people will just like find the footage that are going through a vault and like, oh, I found this footage from this lost movie that we, I don't understand why the studios don't just hire people to go through and like, like why would, I think it would benefit them like oh, to yeah. organize all that shit, right? Like, yeah, yeah. I Hell, I would do it. <laughs> but, <laughs> oh, definitely. Like, yeah. oh, we've got a canister here from the Ambersons and <laughs> Man, just piece everything to back together from. from and I, I get a lot of it is like all over the place. Like you find that they're getting sources from like a, a VHS master that's held in a private collection somewhere. The person didn't even know they had it. Or right, yeah. Uh, like like with the BBC, where the BBC would re just you reuse tapes. So they would have like a Doctor Who, and they would just tape over it with the news or whatever. Like. <laughs> They would reuse the tapes. So there was no record of anything oh my for the God. for decades, and so every once in a while, new Doctor Who episodes are found because people recorded them themselves, and they, right. like, they find out that there's a, like somebody's got it in their collection. Wow, like, that's crazy! I didn't know that. The, the fact that like they had yeah. no idea, they had no thought that any of this stuff would be important in the yeah. future. That, that happened with a lot of like uh, early TV. <laughs> they didn't think much of it. And a lot of that stuff is gone. Yeah. Yeah. Well, a lot of early movies too. Like mm -hmm. the majority yeah. of, of the majority of movies pre 1950 are lost forever. Right. Like, yes. Yeah. It, it's, it's so much stuff that we're just never going to see. And I mean, some of that stuff, I, I, what were we talking? I was talking about something with Rick. There, like the library of Congress does have some of this stuff, but like, there's no way to see it. I guess, I guess you could you could find a way, but like it's not being released. It's I just, think uh, they have like a YouTube channel, and they have I don't know. I've seen a couple features, but a lot of it is like shorts that they have on there that they've preserved. But they have a oh, lot of yeah. like uh, old shorts and uh, documentary shorts, uh, uh, live action shorts, stuff like that. But I don't like, I, the, and I don't know how often they do releases because they they release. Kubrick's first movie, Fear and Desire. And it says Library of Congress on the, I, well, it's from Kino, but I guess that, I, I don't know. I don't know how it looks, but it was a Kino release and it says Library of Congress on the actual box. Yeah. Um, all right. So I guess, Juan, well, you're sure you take a break. So this is a good point for an ad, for not an ad, for a break. <laughs> hey, um, you're you're doing the editing this time. It's whether or not you want to put the break in. I'm not going to tell you you have to. <laughs> all right. So let's, all right, let's just go to the next movie. Then. Uh, <laughs> so continuing Summer in the Shadows and uh, Summer of Kubrick. This one is not on the list, but it's part of the Summer of Kubrick. Obviously, we're going to go back to Kubrick's second film, Killer's Kiss from 1955. And you did say that you hadn't seen this one before, right? Correct. I have okay. not. Cool. Uh, what is this one about, Aaron? All right. Well, Jamie Smith plays Davy Gordon, a down-on-his-luck boxer whose best days are behind him. Irene Kane plays Gloria Price, a dancer for hire at a dance hall run by Vinnie Rapallo, 
a small time hood and her sometimes lover, played by Frank Silvera. Davy rescues Irene when he sees her being attacked one night by Vinny, and they begin an immediate romance and attempt to leave the big city and all of its complications behind. And as you said, I have not seen this one before. It comes on the Criterion Blu-ray of The Killing. I've always known it was there. I cannot give any reason why I didn't watch it, especially since it's super short. It's barely over an hour. I must have just had a negative reaction to Fear and Desire. Like, I didn't like Fear and Desire when I watched it. I, uh. I It, it kind of looked like, okay, it's a first film, right? Like, he's this isn't what Kubrick is going to become. Something about it, I just, I just never got the urge to put it in. I kept telling myself, you should watch it. I never did. So I'm super glad we're doing this because watch it today. <laughs> and I really liked this one. Like, oh, wow. Nice. Yes. It, I, it's, okay. Well, let me, let, let me hear what you got to say about it. You, you, I think you've seen it before, right? <laughs> yeah. I've seen it a few times. I, I think this today, I watched it today. This is like maybe my fourth time. Uh, the first time I watched it, I thought it was just fine. And then I, I feel like it gets better every time I watch it. I will say, though, that for me, at least, this movie is a lot of style over substance. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. But I really in, enjoy this low-budget noir, like, shot, independent, guerrilla style on the streets in New York. It looks great. I really like this one. I'm glad that you liked it, too. Yeah, well, if anybody had told me, because I, I love The Killing so much, and when he does noir, like, I, I mean, I guess it's just this in The Killing. Yeah. But the killing is fantastic. I love that one so much. Yeah. And I guess if anybody had told me that this movie features a an axe versus a harpoon fight in the climax, <laughs> I, I would have been like, oh, okay, I'll check it out. <laughs> I, I just found this one, like, you're right. It's style, style over substance because the plot is as bare bones as you can get. In fact, I kept looking at my watch being like, it's like half an hour into this movie and this movie is basically just an hour long. When are we going to get to the story? Like, when are we going to get to what this movie is about? Yeah. Um, and I, I wasn't not enjoying the experience because you really see Kubrick's, uh, ex, you know, um, experience as a uh, photographer, the way he shoots New York is terrific, right? Like it is like museum worthy. You could just yeah. frame some of the stills in this movie and they, like the way the New York streets kind of just like go off into the distance and kind of disappear in the fog of the grain of the film and everything else up front is so crystal clear. It, it just like, he knew what he was doing, how he shot this movie. And so I was really loving it with that, but it does take like half of, half of the movie's running time to figure out what's going to happen. Uh, but yeah, I, it, it's as bare bones as you can get. Like the, the whole plot is really just like, insane. And it's just like they're they're in love. They gotta escape her kind of like small time gangster ex boyfriend or not yeah. <laughs> kind of like boss that ha- takes you know a little too a few too many liberties. Yeah. Um, I want to say like when I watch this, I don't know if you ever watch Noir Alley on TCM. Mm, yeah. Mm-hmm. The intro, I think it's the intro to Noir Alley. It's one of the bumpers on that they use on TCM a lot uses a lot of footage maybe it's um maybe it's their late night programming maybe it's not normal. yeah it's yeah it's uh i think it's just generally that i don't know if they still do it but uh when i was watching a lot more they i didn't even know it was from that until i saw the movie later but they use it for for that uh oh yeah they use so films. much of it and i was like oh i recognize that guy yeah. taking tickets yeah 
<laughs> yep. Yeah. They take so much from that. The, I think the, when they're dancing in the hall, they take some of that. Um, some of her the, getting, her getting dressed in the mirror. Yes. That's do. another one. I, is the, I think, does the movie have a bus shot too, or is that from something else? Oh, I can't remember. Yeah. But yeah, 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 you're right. Yeah, I, it's very familiar. I, I, it just it always makes me think of TCM, and I like that. At a time where I was watching TCM like all the time. I think this is probably going to be a short conversation because it's a really short movie, and there's not mm-hmm. much to it beyond. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the visuals, but um, yeah, it's all good because like the all the non one thousand and one Kubrick are sort of like supplemental episodes uh, anyway. Yeah. So like yeah. this is like. It's like I said, hybrid. It's summer Kubrick. It's kind of easing back into, to 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 uh, other movies on the list that are not Kubrick. And yeah, Killer's Kiss. I I, I like I, I like uh, I think it's not really an equivalent, but sort of a parallel is that both movies kind of feature a climax where they kind of like it leads to somewhere else, like a strange setup. And the one in Killer's Kiss is like a mannequin, uh, like factory or something like facility where they just it's have so cool <laughs> yeah i, I love, love that it. setting yeah and and, right. and and the streets are so barren and anytime like they leave it's just like there's just trash on the on the street and there's like nothing there like where where did they shoot this where there was like no cars and no people it's, well a lot of it i think was brooklyn but it's just so barren it, yeah they're probably filming in the middle of the night when there's not as many people around and it it is the 1950s. There's not as many people. True. I think we're, we're like I think we've got like twice the population we had in 1959 or something like that. Right. I like the scenes. There are like the 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 boxing the boxing scenes, which are really cool. And one of the short films that Kubrick uh, directed was Day of the Fight, uh, a short documentary, which is a boxing one. Um, and so, so he kind of used that experience on here on this film to. Uh, to show us a, a, a boxing match uh, in in the movie, and uh, the the main character plays a fighter, and he seems kind of lonely. Like he doesn't, like he sort of uh, he lives across uh, from Gloria, uh, played by Irene Kane, and kind of just not in a creepy way watches her. Davy just kind of, you know, lives across from her and watches her and one day happens to hear her scream out and uh, runs to her uh, rescue. And it's interesting that the movie, much like The Killing, sort of uses a lot of flashback. But I don't know if I I like it in this movie. It doesn't feel as precise as it does in The Killing. It's definitely a first time attempt at that. Yeah, it, I mean, it. there's not a lot of flashback aside from the fact that technically the entire movie is a flashback because mm-hmm. we see him kind of pacing around at a um, a train station yeah. and looking at his watch and he's telling the story about what led him to there. And we go back to him a couple of times just right. for a little bit of narration. Yeah, I, I want to say he he isn't very creepy. He he does like look at her once or twice when he's like getting ready and looks over and sees like her windows open and like he's not like staring at her and watching her a lot. He just like sees yeah. her and mm-hmm. does take does take note. Maybe he does think he's attractive. <laughs> yeah. Um falls in love really easily. <laughs> he does. And but what a shitty setup that their windows just face each other like that. <laughs> yeah. And they're they're these so when I was a little bit like, where the hell are they living? and of course you hear about real estate in New York, but they are living in the shittiest little efficiency apartments, right? Uh-huh. Like it, it, it's like this threadbare floor 
there's no bedroom it's one room with the bed the sink and everything yeah and it's <laughs> tiny it's the size of my living room here and then they go downstairs and it's like this huge building looks like a really nice courtyard like really looks like a a, a nice part of town and it's like this is the building that they're living in the <laughs> yeah. apartments are in that it's like very uh, like tenement looking <laughs> like but then <laughs> But then he he walks like two steps out the front door and he's at the subway. So it's like probably not the best part of town. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I, Frank Silvera as Vinny, uh, he, he has a kind of distinctive look uh, that fits his character very perfectly. Not a good guy, kind of like, like a club owner uh, and really shitty guy too, to uh, Gloria and when they get into that fight and she uh, threatens with, uh, or threatens to scream, <laughs> Vinny is begging her to, you know, give, give me one more shot. And it's like, obviously, you know, she's finally like, I'm drawing the line here. Like, I'm not giving you another shot. And here comes Davey. He gets dragged into all this. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and it's, and he's, you know, he's obviously a jealous guy, gets super jealous when he sees Gloria dancing with different people at, at the dance hall. But nothing's gonna change, and 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 he's, and and Gloria calls him a, a smelly old man, or no, yeah, 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 uh, a smelly old man. So she, we we know Gloria doesn't really, it's not really that invested in this relationship, at least not at this point. Yeah, hey, I I want to just mention Frank Silvera mm -hmm. as an actor because he was uh he he was a black actor. And, and director, but because he's, he's kind of light-skinned, he was cast a lot as Latino or even Polynesian. This movie, it. like... <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah, so I, I, I was thinking, like, I guess Vinny, the name Vinny, he's supposed to be uh, Italian, maybe? Yes. Is what they're, they're trying to say, or like Silvera, Vinny Silvera, sounds like they're, they're trying to say mm -hmm. he's Italian. Mm -hmm. But this was 19... What, what year was this, 59? 55. Oh, 55. This is 10 years before uh, 50 years or 50, 10 years before a patch of blue. And Sidney Poitier is considered, you know, the first black man to kiss a white woman in a movie. Oh, and I yeah. watched this and I was like, I was like, what, like, what kind of a, a, a strong choice, even though you can also say that Vinny is embodying kind of the worst fears of what, you know, white people think people of color are going to do to our women <laughs> yes um, true yeah it, it it is kind of like he is very physical they are they are making out a couple of times in the movie yeah uh, yeah and and at least in the first couple times or at least the first time i can't remember if it's more than that it, it it's very consensual right like she right. is mm -hmm. uh you we don't know that maybe she doesn't like him as much we we think like oh they're just they're in a relationship it kind of changes the whole i didn't know that about frank silver it kind of changes the whole meaning of the movie <laughs> yeah so yeah. i was i i kind of was uh well i i don't think they cast him to be yeah yeah, um, yeah. but it, yeah it it, it kind of does that <laughs> it, it can, it. yeah it gives it an uh it can, like a uh, valid like i guess reading if someone has like a, a, a like a ethnic or race racial reading to it, it, it i can see it now i i did not know that wow i'm just thinking back on that As it says here he was born in what's now kingston jamaica yeah yeah that's it wow that's so crazy so that that like also i i kind of viewed it not as i mean later on you can view it as like kind of like white fear 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Even though I don't, I don't necessarily think that's quite Kubrick, you know, like I, yeah, I don't get course. that feeling from him, yeah. but in the beginning, what I was thinking is like, wow, like, I mean, it's independently financed. Like he borrowed money and, and paid for all this. Well, not himself, but his uncle's money that, that Kubrick would cast a, a, an actor of color for this mm-hmm. role where mm-hmm. in the beginning, we're just seeing him make out with a white woman. And it's like, not a big deal. That's remarked upon by the movie itself. And yet I, I know that like movies were getting protested and like they were not being booked in the South for things like this. So I, I'm just surprised I had never kind of heard about that aspect of this movie, even though it's so small, it probably just went under everybody's radar. Yeah. And I mean, I, I, I think maybe it would be a bigger deal if uh, Frank Silvera was a bigger star, probably. I think. Yeah. And he, I think, Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, it was just because it's mostly like a character actor. Oh, um, I, I mixed yeah. up his name. I said Vinny Silvera. It's Vinny Rapala. Yeah, Vinny Rapallo. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I think, yeah, his name, he probably, a lot of people probably just assumed because he, 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 you know, that he, since he was able to play so many different ethnicities, it, it probably his name helped with casting in that regard that he didn't like, it didn't raise the red flags with studios. I'm, it just feels icky to talk about. I don't know how to talk about it. Without, <laughs> like, no, I get it. Yeah. Creepy. Going back to the, to the film itself, there's like the sort of dream sequence that, Davy has where we see the streets of New York, barren streets, and 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 uh, we see it in a negative format, and yeah. we see those exact same streets later on too, where it's not is you know it's normal, it's a positive, and the 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 depth that he gets in that shot like that, like the street is so straight and it looks like it goes off into infinity, and the buildings just kind of keep going. It's so like symmetrical and perfect and those scenes like of the camera remind me of like the the stargate sequences in 2001 kind of like a prototype to that is the camera just kind of hovering over the streets and just moving and cutting from different shots it's very eerie it is kubrick had a photographer's eye and you can tell Mm -hmm. this one and he really like he really got the most out of these locations and it it is such a striking movie to look at like um you know the plot as i said not not the, the most engaging thing, but just visually, it looks really great. And he he lights his actors so well. Um, yeah. Like I'd never heard of the the guy, um, the guy who plays Davy Gordon, uh, Jamie Smith. I'd never heard of him before. He's been in a few things. I think he 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 worked with Orson Welles. He was part of his theatrical troupe for a while. Oh wow! Um, but he he was like he he was really good. Everybody was convincing in their roles in a way that like. You don't always expect from these low budget independent films. Um, I thought he kind of looked a little bit like Burt Lancaster. Oh yeah, he does. I'm looking at the poster and I'm like he he looks like and also I thought that because there's a scene in in the killers with Burt Lancaster, uh, in the beginning where he's laying down in bed and someone knocks at his door and he kind of gets up. Yeah. <laughs> Jamie Sorry, Smith, just watched Dead Men Nowhere Plaid. <laughs> yeah, that's that's what brought it up. Uh Jason, Jamie Smith does kind of something similar in this movie too. I think when he hears um glorious scream he kind of like jolts up and and then to check out what's going on yeah yeah, it's good. yeah. i thought he did a really uh, yeah, he, did a really good job with mm-hmm. um with the fight scenes like the boxing scene is is like we've seen like more visceral boxing scene probably like raging bull is like the first one that really people remember as kind of being really visceral and you are there but mm-hmm. i i thought he 
he, this he gave a lot of energy to this. Oh yeah, it, it mm-hmm. felt kind of brutal watching him get get beaten. Yeah, there, and and you, it really does hammer that he's like he's trying, but his best days are behind him, and now he's just kind of a punching bag for people yeah. that are on the way up. I was going to ask you, have you seen Body and Soul, the the forties uh, with John Garfield? Mm, I no. Oh, it's actually it's from forty seven, the same year as lady from shanghai it, it's kind of like a it's a boxing movie uh but it also has like noir aspects to it. it's a really good movie it's um it, uh, the boxing scenes in that are were shot uh by damn it i forget his name but they were shot the cinematographer was on roller skates uh for that and oh he, wow yeah it gets really in there um to get some of those shots kind of dynamic james wong how get some really cool shots and there's like pictures of him on these roller skates uh in the ring it, 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 it those are some of the best like kind of early boxing film uh shots you should definitely check it out and it, 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 it like i said it does have like these more elements to it as well so it'll um it'll definitely f- fit your you know your current uh somewhere in the shadows yeah yeah I'll, I'll, I'll check that out the one i um the boxing noir i think of all time is uh the setup with robert ryan directed yeah, by robert yeah. wise we've mm-hmm. mentioned yeah. yeah that's a good one that has that has a couple of good boxing scenes and that and uh uh 99 river street although he's a former boxer in that one. Oh, okay yeah i haven't seen that one um oh but i was gonna say about the fight scenes that fight at the end when when it's him against the three guys <laughs> that was surprisingly brutal when he yeah. like the guy like punches him and then knees him in the face. Yeah. And it's all like one shot. And I was like, that doesn't look like he faked it. <laughs> that looks like <laughs> he actually beat the crap out of this guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was really rough. It, I mean, just like really tough looking. Yeah, I'm uh, sure a lot of that stuff is like the fight scenes are probably a lot of real injuries. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I, I would hope not. But yeah. Never know. Yeah. Um, there's something else I wanted to mention about this movie, but I can't, I can't remember it now. Oh, this is what it was for a noir movie. It does have a very optimistic ending. It does. It does. Like this is one where, yeah, like there's usually the fatalism of noir, Mm -hmm. but like everybody gets out. Okay. That needs to get out. Okay. Yeah. That (laughs) doesn't end too well for Vinny. Yeah. It's yeah. It's such a, it's very, it doesn't feel very Kubrick, but you know, the final, moment of the uh of the movie is both the the male and female lead embracing and kissing <laughs> yeah which is kind of yeah. like we've we've been yeah. watching him pace and it's because yeah. he does not he's not sure if she's gonna show up show up yeah um, i, I want to talk before because i know we're, we're on a time crunch but i want to talk just a little bit more about that ending how cool it is in the the mannequin like the way he shoots people like he'll he'll shoot them where they're they're kind of like standing in unison with the unison i don't know if that's our word but with the mannequins around them like they're looking in the same way and then they'll move but they're not like hiding because they they're clearly not a mannequin but it's yeah it's really cool like framing the way he does everything and then yeah that they start fighting each other with an axe and a harpoon yes (laughs) you were talking about kind of like the the dream sequence and there's like the the hallucinatory aspects of uh lady from Hang- shanghai as well yeah. like they, they each have an ending that kind of heightens it to uh kind of a, to an a, a unrealistic degree 
yeah uh, visually unrealistic and I, even though it, in this one it is a real place it's just like it, there's something about it that feels unreal um have you seen uh murder my sweet uh no i have not that has um what what year was murder my sweet i'm sorry i'm just looking at it. 1944 dick powell plays uh philip marlowe he has a like this drug-induced hallucination that is like that i uh, that's kind of the standout for this i i love those in noir movies just like the the where the character and dick powell does this a few times with the character that has the brain injury and can't really trust what they're seeing or experiencing yeah mm -hmm. and there the the hallucination sequence in that he's been drugged is really cool that's a lot of fun yeah i haven't seen this one edward dimitrick though i like him he's a good director wow yeah i gotta check this out um all right so i don't i don't have anything else for killer's kiss um it's just something i wanted to bring up for summer kubrick um uh, yeah something i wanted you to see and and i'm glad you liked it because yeah, i like, like this movie a lot too i would say that it, there's a I, I understand why this isn't talked about in the same breath as like 2001 or the shining i understand why it's not in the list um but this was just like just a cool movie like there, there's a this and the killing are kind of like i think the coolest kubrick was where he was he was at the point where like he still had you know artistic pretensions like he was still trying to make art with a capital a but in the killing like he still thought it was really cool to put a, a pig mask on uh <laughs> on sterling hayden and how, how awesome that would look with him holding yeah. the shotgun yeah. like there, you can see he's still like like i'm also just going to do something that looks pretty badass yeah and i think i think this movie is is really fun on a visual level and, oh definitely really captures new york re really well and i think definitely like any any fan of kubrick should see this one yeah, definitely. Yeah, this is uh, this one. Yeah, very uh, not talked about as much, but uh, still worth worth a watch. And I would replace this on the list. Like I would replace Lolita with this. On the <laughs> with Killer's Kiss, yeah. Well, if, also if I had to, if we had to keep the yeah. same number, I just want Lolita, yeah. Lolita off that, and <laughs> let's put let's put anything else on. But Killer's Kiss, I would put in there. Well, the killing's not on the list either. Oh, well, fuck, put the killing <laughs> in there, Jesus. Right? Yeah, I, that, that'll be the part of the discussion on that killing episode, because I, I I thought it was originally. And then it's when I was going through it, surprise, I kept looking at my, do I have the year wrong? No, it's great, that one's so good. It's so good, yeah, it's really great. Um, I think this is gonna be like, somewhere in the shadows, zero, like, we're, like <laughs> we're gonna, I'm gonna try this again next year. There's just so many things intruded that like, it, it's been impossible to keep up with it. I vastly overestimated how many people I know that would want to talk about noir. And I, I guess I could have just asked you and Rick to be on every week and we could have done it that way. I would have loved um, that. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's what will end up happening next yeah. time. It's just like we're kind of limping to the end of it. I think I've got a few more weeks. Well, about a, about four more episodes, I think, are going to go into it. Yeah. Um, but it, it's, uh, it, it may be a little bit more because I had stuff scheduled, but like it's coming to the end and I've missed a few weeks and you know, life is, I, I, my show, the incredible two headed podcast is a little bit of a, uh, an odd spot right now where I can't take a hiatus because Halloween's coming up, but oh, yeah. after that, I may have to take a hiatus just to be able to like, yeah. like catch up and figure out how I'm going to make it work with my work schedule. But if people want to listen to that incredible two headed podcast, wherever you get podcasts and you can find me 
Instagram and Twitter at Two Headed Pod. Sweet. Uh, you have been listening to me, Jay Carlos Menjivar, uh-huh. the host of Dial F for Film. I'm a frequent guest on Aaron's podcast, and uh, I, I love these episodes where we get together and, and kind of share uh, something from both shows with uh, uh, our fans. And I think it's great. And I, I love noir. So any any chance uh, <laughs> or anytime you need someone for noir, uh, definitely uh, think of me because I am a huge fan of this style of filmmaking. Uh, you can find us on uh, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Dial Up Podcast. And this podcast is available pretty much anywhere. Uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Audible, Stitcher. Uh, just, we're on, I think, the whatever the Google podcast thing is, we're on that as well. Uh, but yeah, this was a lot of fun and, uh, oh, it's always fun. Always fun. Yeah. To talk about movies. And then uh, really quick, uh, cause you do this on your show. I have a few extra minutes. Uh, are you good on time? Oh, I'm yeah. Yeah. You, okay. I'm good. I thought, I, I thought you had to get going, but I'm good to go. <laughs> uh, I was going to, did I tell you that I watch, cause you mentioned, uh, Philip Marlowe, but did I mention to you at all, uh, that I watch, where's this damn movie? What is it called? Did I not list Wait. it? It's a Philip Marlowe movie from the 70s with uh, Robert Mitchum. Farewell, My Lovely. Is that what it is? Or is that the oh, one? Oh, I have not seen that one. Oh, okay. So I, I saw that one. It was on the neo-noir uh, thing on Criterion Channel. And yeah, well, when you see it, if you ever see it, let me know. Because I, I don't know if I liked it. I thought it was kind of dull. And I don't know. <laughs> it was just, yeah. a, I was not expecting much from from it and it, it kind of disappointed a little bit but i want to like if you ever watch it let me know i want to hear your thoughts on that one um okay um, yeah. i i, I want to watch more noir like i i um i've been watching the stuff for this show uh i did like take a break to watch the street fighter yesterday because of the sunny chiba rest in peace uh, yeah um but i i pretty much my movie watching is is you know the stuff for the show that's part of why i need to kind of like figure out what i'm gonna like how i'm gonna go forward with this because uh it's just it's finding the time you know like yeah working is i'll find a balance i'll find a balance but it's like it's gonna take me a little while but i haven't i haven't been able to watch a lot of stuff oh that we haven't talked about already right 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 so it's mostly just like stuff for the show that you've been watching pretty much yeah yeah okay cool well i mean yeah it happens i like i feel like earlier in the year that was me where i was only watching things for the podcast and now I, I, I've gotten to a point where I can, you know, I feel like I'm getting back into it and I can start watching a combination of things. And then not as much as before, but I can still watch like new stuff or stuff that has nothing to do with the podcast. Like your recommendation of Ghosts of Mars, which I watched twice last weekend, which was a lot of fun. Oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, which That's is, right, because we were, we were like, we were just talking a lot about uh, John Carpenter. Yeah, right? and yeah, and then I watched Dark Star, which... Uh, I, I I didn't like it at first, and then as it went on, I was like, "This is a lot like 2001, but funny." Yeah, <laughs> it, it is. It, it it's it's a college movie that they yeah. just got money to expand, and so it's like not not the most polished thing, but I find it fun. Um, I, I I will say, uh, like I watch only stuff for this show, and then like the the vast array of streaming options in front of me, and all of this. Uh, stuff out there i found i found at the 99 cent store and watched this 2008 movie called plaguers P- plaguers as in a plague but like, oh. and uh-huh. this is the trash i'm watching because i looked at it <laughs> it's got 
it's got space pirates, it's got Steve Railsback, and it's got uh like demon zombies. Oh, and nice. I was like, okay, this is a you know pretty low risk investment. So that's the type of trash I'm watching. <laughs> and it was great. awful. It was really yeah. bad. Uh, yeah. It was basically a mashup of Aliens and the Italian film Demons. If, if that gives you any, oh, <laughs> it's so exactly Aliens. Like Steve Railsback, you know, from Life Force and uh, the Stunt Man, and mm-hmm. uh, he, he's basically playing Bishop. Like he's almost in the, like the same outfit, <laughs> the same hairstyle as Lance Henriksen yeah. from Aliens. It's and ridiculous. <laughs> you found this at a dollar store, you said? Yeah, I think it's yeah, on wow. Tubi as well. Right. Oh, okay. Yeah, damn, that's crazy. Um, well, uh, thank you so much uh, for coming on the show. Um, I guess, well, we're on each other's show, so I don't know why I'm thanking you, but thanks so much no, for no. doing this, this uh, co, co-production co of uh, Summer of Kubrick and uh, Summer in the Shadows. No, th- this was a lot of fun. I'm glad we talked about it. I'm glad I fi- you finally got me to break that, <laughs> the Killing Blu-ray, and look at those supplementals instead of just watching the movie. It's, in a, it's so weird that they include it as a supplemental. It doesn't like it should like like plus you know Killer's Kiss and like big lettering or something. Well, we were talking about this <laughs> too, recently too because they just announced, and I'm very excited for the Once Upon a Time in China series. Yeah, and they announce it as all five films from the Once Upon a Time in China cycle, and I'm like, I, I thought there was a six, and so I looked, and I because I have the sixth movie is Once Upon a Time in China and America. I have it on DVD and I looked it up and I'm like, yeah, it's a six film series. So why are they saying it's only five films? But you go and look at the special features and the first special feature is includes Once Upon a Time in China and America. Like, why would they just say (laughs) it's all six films in the series? Why would they, why would they say it's all five films when everybody that's a fan of the series would know that there is a sixth one? Uh, I, I don't understand why they do that. Sometimes. Yeah, it's so weird because like it, sometimes it makes sense. Like, for example, Jim Jarmusch's Stranger Than Paradise includes his I think it's a student film, which is featured like permanent vacation. Like that wasn't like a like didn't have like a commercial release at all. It's a student film like yeah. that. I get. But like something like Killer's Kiss is Kubrick's second movie. <laughs> and, you know, the, the one you're talking about, like that's another, you know, it's not a student film. Uh, I don't know. It's it, it's so weird. But does this complete your Kubrick? Does that this mean? Oh yeah, I, I've seen everything now. Wow, you completed your Kubrick on summer uh, summer of Kubrick. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>